0: So, I think it's all about what's going on in the present. What do people like nowadays? And a prediction about what will survive is very, very difficult. Hi,
1: I'm Andrew Goldstein and this is The Art Angle, a podcast from Artnet News where the art world meets the real world, bringing each week's biggest story down to earth. This month, we at ArtNet have been celebrating something remarkable for an online art business. Our 30th anniversary. That's right. ArtNet was founded all the way back in 1989 on the belief that a shared database of the prices that artworks achieved at auction would help bring transparency to the opaque art market. While that may sound commonsensical today... It was a massively disruptive development at the time since every art dealer and collector was working off their own impartial set of prices gathered at art fairs and auctions and scribbled down in notebooks. Today that quaint art business is ancient history because it's been replaced by a global art industry filled with players who buy then flip artworks for astronomical sums as if they were just more attractive stocks. This is in large part due to Artnet, since access to its data helped fuel the financialization of the market, and is something that is both the pride and regret of Hans Neuendorf, Artnet's visionary founder who spent decades as an old-fashioned art dealer before changing the game. Now 82 years old, Hans has in recent years stepped back from the company, handing the reins to his son, Jacob Pabst, but he remains keenly and actively interested in the business he created. Today, I'm very happy to sit down with Hans to talk about where Artnet came from and where it's going. Thank you very much for joining me on The Art Angle, Hans. <laughs> okay. So we just had a week of 30th anniversary celebrations for Artman. How does it feel for you to be seeing the company that you created achieve this incredible milestone, which is even more remarkable for an internet company?
0: Well, it felt felt strange, I must say. Also a little bit shocking, because 30 years is a really long time. And uh, I found out from our HR department that over 50% of our employees here at Artnet had not yet been born when I started the company. So I think this tells you a little bit how long 30 years is. (laughs) And when I first came to New York to live here with my family, which was, I think, in 1995, prior to our IPO, which took place in 1999, and uh, five years after the founding of Artnet, when I first came here, I thought, you know, that was after we had worn out three chief executive officers. And I thought I should go back and run the company myself in order to not lose the investment. So I came here and I thought, this shouldn't be too difficult. It's a small company. I can do this in three years. Now it's 30 years. (laughs) And you can imagine how I feel after that, you know.
1: If you look around the landscape, the art world has changed tremendously. I mean, it used to be something that was mainly concentrated in New York, in Paris, in London. And now its art capitals have been spread all around the world. The kinds of artists who are making work has exploded stratospherically. The kinds of prices that people are achieving for their artworks now is almost inconceivable, if you were to go back 30 years. Can you tell me, in your words, how is the art world different today than it was 30 years ago when you founded ArtNet? And how is it the same?
0: (laughs) I don't think it's the same in any way. I think it's much, much larger. I think quality doesn't count as much as it used to. I think the the selection of artworks is much more trendy than it used to be at the time when I started. And so I think it's very, very different. What do you mean by trendy? At the stock market, you would call it trend buying rather than going by quality. You know, I mean, Warren Buffett says you always have to look at the company and the management and you buy what you like there. And others go just by watching the stocks go up and down and try to fit in someplace to make a profit.
1: And you spent several decades as not only an art dealer, first in Hamburg and then also in Frankfurt and then Cologne, but... You were a very successful art dealer. You had an ability to find artists who were of incredible quality before anybody else was able to identify them and then bring them to market to huge success. That was my
0: business model. And that's how I think all the art dealers functioned, you know. They looked out for something that they liked and appreciated and respected. And they tried to contact the artists and buy uh, these paintings and show them in exhibitions and promote them with catalogs and books. And that worked very well. There was an educated, erudite, public out there responding to those suggestions. And now it's a little bit different. (laughs) Tell
1: me, how did you guide your eye? What was it that told you that George Baselitz was such a great... And what told you that David Hockney was such a great artist?
0: Well, Hockney was an easy one. Everybody liked his work, you know, and he was also an excellent draftsman. He did these very attractive drawings and so everyone respected that. And he, as a person, was also very easy. And so he became well-known and expensive right away. It was very hard to find paintings by David Hockney.
1: Well, this is an interesting point that you bring up, that you said everybody was interested in Hockney. It was easy to see that he was a great artist, but not everybody bought so much of his work. How did you do this longer-term, more quality-based style of art prospecting, for lack of better words? I was
0: buying impulsively and showing artists impulsively. Not so much looking at the future and seeing how the price would go up or the, the work would appreciate. Yeah, I just bought uh, emotionally, and that's how it happened with Baselitz. And Baselitz, I must tell you, was hated at the time. Nobody liked his work. And it came out of nowhere. It had had no direct past, Uh, like pop art had, you know, for instance, Richter and Polke were clearly influenced by pop art, and so were many other young German artists, but Baselitz was not.
1: I mean, this is another thing that you, you mentioned, that people immediately after World War II were not looking at German artists. They didn't see that as a country that was capable at that time of creating great art. And here's George Baselitz. His work is full of anxiety, despair, anger. What was it about his work that really struck you and made you such a believer?
0: At the time when I went for pop art and bought a lot of pop art, that was the time when the trend was in Paris. The Ecole de Paris was very strong and those painters went for high prices and you had long waiting lists and stuff. That was not the area where you would want to work as a young art dealer without capital. And so I was looking for an alternative. And I was also tired of the Ecole de Paris. And when pop art came over the Atlantic. That was a fresh breeze. Now, the same thing then happened again when the pop art was a little bit tired. The prices were very high. It became very fashionable. And so it was not the area that I wanted to be concerned in. And at that point, Baselitz was a very unusual appearance. And I, I found his work very strong. It was influenced by existentialism. Uh, East German art and even Northern European art by artists that i had never heard of before. And I thought it was just really fascinating.
1: So when you founded Artnet, you told me a story about how dealers would literally go up and down in the same building, taking the elevator to buy work on one's floor and then sell it for a higher price on a lower floor because people didn't know the value of the artwork.
0: That was common. These people are called runners. they spotted small price differences from gallery to gallery. And uh, because they went to both galleries and the dealers didn't visit each other's galleries, you know, they had a way of surviving.
1: Artnet, when it unveiled transparent, objectively gathered set of prices that were obtained from auction houses,
0: that completely put these people out of business. Well, I had really strong complaints from them. They really were bitter about it.
1: And the auction houses were not too keen well, auction on Arden. the were either.
0: against it, of course, too, because they didn't believe that price transparency was uh, desirable. You know, at the time, the trade believed... It's best to keep the client in the dark about the real value. And they thought that was the way to make a profit. Whereas I believe that, you know, price transparency is the best for driving the market and driving transactions.
1: Where does that belief come from?
0: I mean, in other industries, you don't have this secrecy. You know, the stock market, you know, the car market. Everybody knows what a used car is worth. You had a blue book where you can look. This didn't exist in the art world.
1: So what happened when Artnet debuted is it immediately started to change the contours of the playing field. And it went not too quickly, but gradually from being something that the dealers and the auctioneers despised to something that they relied on. How did that happen?
0: Well, it took a very long time and the change was very slow and that's why I couldn't follow it. I mean, our sales guys had to go out and convince every dealer one by one to sign up for this service. And then, of course, the the one event that really made us popular and where dealers couldn't resist it anymore, was that Bill Ruprecht, who was CEO of Sotheby's, came to see us with his entourage and asked if he couldn't have the data uh, for free in exchange for giving us a marketing tool. So getting us subscriptions, you know, getting us access to his clients. And we gave it to him and, and it worked very well. And then the subscription shot up and immediately customers of other auction houses, that was really the defining moment.
1: If you flash forward to today, the art business that you knew as an art dealer in the seventies and eighties, it's gone forever. How would you describe the new way of doing business?
0: Well, there's many factors to it, but it's mainly much more public and uh, it's much more capital intensive. And then we have email, we have the internet. That was what interested me first at Artnet, that that you could actually transfer images from computer to computer at no cost. We had to stuff large transparencies into envelopes and bring them to the post office and send them off and then wait for the reply, which came two weeks later. That's a huge change.
1: And you also published these very lavish... Catalogs for the artist because that was the only way that you could communicate what was in a gallery show to people who were outside of the immediate neighborhood that that show was taking place. And you
0: didn't have much feedback on the catalogs. You know, sometimes someone would call you about a painting, but mostly the feedback was delayed, sometimes by years. I just did it because I didn't know any other way of how to promote what I had.
1: And now, of course, a dealer can just send out an email to their mailing list showing some works from a show and they can get responses from people who want to buy or they can even bypass that entirely yeah. and just post a work on Instagram and have someone reach out to them directly yes. to, to buy it. It's It has completely leapt over those distances of space and time and really shortened the transactional gap for any kind of purchase. So it makes sense that that would accelerate everything to the, to the degree that, that it, it has. that, it
0: in a very large public that hadn't been interested in art. So we now have a completely transformed market for art. There's many, many more people buying art but not necessarily people who know too much about art. And that changed the demand, and the demand changed the supply. (laughs) And so we have a different art world.
1: I mean, that's something that you've spoken about before, about the reign of popularity, where once this connoisseurial idea of quality was what dictated the value of an artwork, now the value of an artwork can be dictated by how many followers the artist has how many celebrity collectors an artist has, how many times an artist has been featured in a TV show. There are these different levers of creating value and it's, it's a whole new ballgame. So I wonder, how do you see the competitive picture for Artnet today? How do you see it fitting into a broader kind of ecosystem of art businesses and people who are doing things in a different
0: way? More and more people need to know about what's popular and what's not popular. Mm-hmm. And we're delivering the data to them about not only prices, but price trends. You know, we have algorithms that can predict the value of an artwork. I having followed this artist for some years. Popularity is the key. And our tools that we are developing rely on numbers. I, I used to find interesting artists and buy them and sell them successfully. And over many years and some of them became very famous, I wouldn't trust myself in picking the right artists nowadays. That's a big difference for me. That
1: brings up an interesting point, which is that one thing that is happening in this new realm of popularity is it's allowing a tremendous number of new voices to be entered into the playing field. And you have new artists that you'd never see before, far more women artists, far more people of color making art, far more people from different nationalities making art that is coming in... And selling in other countries. And selling in other countries, mm. so coming into this international yeah. kind of slipstream. That is an incredible benefit of this new industry that... It's much more open than it was. Much more open. Yes, and, and people are adapting to it, they're learning how to find these new drivers of value. It must be interesting to look at Artnet and see how it has such an impact and then also think about where you want it to go from here.
0: Well, I want to improve the communication even more than it exists today. You know, we have the Artnet news. I think that's very valuable. Everybody knows what's going on. And uh, that hasn't been possible before when the news was in print. And uh, the same is then for the prices in the price database and all other means of communication. I think it's all about communication now. So I think I would like to uh, push in that direction and continue to push in that direction. I think there's a virtue there for doing that. But I also would like to make transactions easier Mm -hmm. because so far, when you are a collector and you wanted to resell something, which happens quite frequently, it's nearly impossible to do that with a trade as it's set up today or as it was in the past. It's getting better, but it's it's really very difficult because the trade and the auction houses have very large cost factors to deal with and I would like to improve that by doing auctions online and doing a market online and so not only communicate about the availability of artworks but also transact right there.
1: What is the appetite among a scalable audience of people for buying art, which is a luxury good? Online,
0: I think there's a lot of appetite and we know that many people who live in the provinces or in smaller cities have come to us and bought through us. And that's a trend that we are seeing, but uh, in the same way, it has been said it's not possible to sell art that's very expensive online and many galleries and, and internet companies have focused on the low end of the market. I think that's completely wrong. I think the higher the value of an artwork is, the better is it documented and the more you know about it and the safer it is to buy it online. It's the expensive works that you buy with a degree of uh, authority and and, and confidence. It's the the less expensive works that are problematic. I think the very expensive things will be traded online and they are now traded online. And mind the large auction houses sell from their catalogs. Not many people go to their previews, they saw them on the phone.
1: This is a very different kind of impetus for a buyer than decor. The idea that you have a space over your couch or a space you know, over your bed that you want to fill with a painting or an artwork, that's a different kind of buyer than the ones that you're talking about, who are these collectors who are trying to buy something that has value that will then retain that value or grow in value. What do you find is the opportunity for the middle range between the high price and the low price?
0: Well, there's often a mix. You know, you buy a painting because you like it, put it over your mantelpiece, and it goes up in value, and you sell it and buy something else. And also, there's a very large group of people who buy and sell professionally, although they're private individuals who collect art because they like it. And so people uh, go through their collections sometimes many times in their life, whereas earlier on, Usually couples bought some paintings for their house together, and then when they had their apartment decorated, they stopped. (laughs) And the paintings would come on the market because their children sold them. You know, that was a generational thing at the time. Now it's all happening simultaneously.
1: That's a a very interesting point, because this is a new cohort of people to cater to, which is this semi-pro independent person who buys work, but is keeping an eye on the valuations, reading the news, following all the cues. It's a very dynamic way of participating in the culture that is is different from the way it used to be. What do you think about these artists who make a painting and then see it enter into this kind of casino-like arena where people are flipping it back and forth? I know
0: that many artists reject it, that they really don't like it. On the other hand, one must say, as this demand has developed, the supply has also changed. So there are many artists who go for the money, for the quick success and all that, you know, so everybody's happy.
1: And the irony, of course, is that the artists who ignore the market and make something of true and lasting value... Are the ones More lasting
0: value. And that is uh, you know, an idea that's come into question as well.
1: Uh, interesting.
0: How do you mean? What do you mean lasting? Rembrandt was out of fashion for a couple of hundred years and uh, and then was rediscovered, so to speak. And, uh, and it happened to many other artists who were forgotten. Artists from the Renaissance had considered to be uh, wonderful. So if an artist is falling out of favor, it could mean that he will be rediscovered 10 years from now. 50 years, or 100 years from now, or never. Whole cultures have been forgotten. So I think it's all about what's going on in the present. What do people like nowadays? And a prediction about what will survive is very, very difficult.
1: Speaking of predictions, before we close out, I want to ask, Artnet has just celebrated its 30th anniversary. If you will indulge me in a little sci-fi thinking, what do you think Artnet could be 30 years from now?
0: I think it could be a very large international online market for art, including all the services like information, like news and price services and all that. I don't see how the market can work properly and efficiently without one such company. But it's possible that it will divide up as it has before in other industries. There will be one very large one and one a little smaller and then a third one, and those three will dominate the market and then there will be the long tail of smaller companies. And I think that's probably what's going to happen. And obviously, I would like to be the large company. <laughs>
1: you, you helped invent the art fair back in 1967 in Cologne. So are you picturing something that is an infinite art fair with aisles that stretch out? all the way into the distance that can contain all the work of its time, something that is a universal art fair. Yes, like this. Well, that's interesting. We're going to have to see,
0: <laughs> see what happens 30 years from now. I think it will happen earlier.
1: Well, that is a very exciting note to end on. Thank you very much for joining me here today, Hans. This You're has welcome. been great. That's it for this week's episode of The Art Angle. If you want to learn more about Hans Neuendorf's epic True Life saga, you can read the six-part interview I did with him on Artnet News. And if you like what you heard on today's show, you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever else you get your podcasts. The Art Angle is produced by Tim Schneider and Caroline Goldstein and edited by Nick Long. If you like what you heard today, please feel free to leave a rating and review. And otherwise, thank you for listening and see you next week.